delivery, right? So you hire the director, you hire the writer, you hire all the artists. Then you make sure you have all these deliverables. You have investors that have invested in this. You have a delivery, a schedule, and it's either going to be successful or it's going to lose money, right? That's just how it works. Sound kind of familiar, right? That kind of sounds like starting a company. Have an idea. You hire these people. You have investors. You find the money. You try and make it work. And then hopefully it works and everyone makes money. Sometimes, a lot of times, it nothing's working. Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview leaders, innovators, and uncommonly high achievers. Today on the show, we've got Andrew Tite. Andrew, thanks for doing this. Of course, my pleasure. So for people who don't know about Catch, tell us about your company. Yeah, yeah. So we are an entertainment data analytics company. We work with movie studios, production companies, streaming services to help them better connect with their audiences, how to connect emotionally with their audiences by a deep understanding of their content. So I remember when, so shout out to Shane Snow, who got us connected here. That's not Shane. When, when he first connected us, I was fascinated with this idea of, I guess I've been like so fascinated with the entertainment industry, like a lot of other people, but maybe I've taken it further than, than other just hobbyists where I've looked into, I've been a part of some financings and things like this, and, or at least attempted financings. And there's a lot of guessing. There's a lot of guessing in the entertainment industry, right? Oh my God. And so hearing what you guys are doing uh, is fascinating to like my inner investor is like, look at all this potential risk reduction. Can you, can you talk about what a genome is when we're not talking about the human genome and and kind of the Pandora analogy and some of these things? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing to understand is the industry as a whole, we spend 230 plus billion dollars a year producing content. That's a, that's a lot of money producing content. And then we spend, you know, $50 billion plus around their uh, marketing content. We spend a couple billion dollars deeply trying to understand our audience, right? Who is our audience? They're Nike buyers or they're, they're your, you know, Netflix, Netflix subscribers. But we spend almost no money as an industry trying to deeply understand content. And that's interesting because I would argue that you can't understand your audience until you understand your content. Because really with, with a deep understanding of content, when you pair that against behavior, you can tap into that why. Why does someone like what they like? And really that's what we tried to get at with Catch is we created something called the Catch Media Genome Project designed by my co-founder, Dr. Nolan Gasser. And Nolan was the architect of the Pandora Music Genome Project, which was this way of deeply understanding music. I mean, we've all heard of Pandora. They have massive success. But the thing that I fell in love with at Pandora was this, you know, this, this, their ability to really tap into my taste. When it made a recommendation, it was able to get to the core of what I resonate with. I, I love, you know, a key change. I love, you know, a, a, a saxophone, you know, at, at, a saxophone solo at a certain moment in time. I just did, for some reason, I, that just strikes my chord, if you will, pun intended. And so the thought was, you know, could we do this with film and television? So I was fortunate enough to be paired with Nolan and pitched him this idea. And, you know, he was crazy enough to agree to do it. And so we created the Catch Media Genome. So we break movies and TV shows into about 2,500 unique variables. And these aren't binary tags. They're, they're, they're each gene is scored on a scale. On, and I'm not going to tell you how much, but it's on a scale, right? And so if, if something is there, to what degree does this, you know, impact your overall experience of the film? And so if you can imagine a world, imagine a world where every piece of content is genomically analyzed. 
into the same 2,500 variables, all of a sudden, now you're able to really do a ton of incredible data science to figure out why we resonate with something. You know, I love the movie Gladiator. And let's just pretend in this scenario, Jess, you also like the movie Gladiator. But the reason we like that movie might be for wildly different reasons. So why? Why should, you know, the production company, the streaming service use the same marketing message to try and get you to consume this piece of content as me? If we understand people in these taste-based audience segments, we can better figure out how to market to each one of these segments to encourage them to say, hey, you know, I should give this a shot. It's, it's, it's a detailed way at looking at content and kind of, you know, strategically, you know, I don't know, the targeting audiences in a new way, if you will. Yeah, I remember when you showed me the demo, this idea of like, hey, look at this. You know, we, we ran through some different movie examples and you're like, okay, look at this movie. It's got these themes. We would expect it to do better in these countries because they've, you know, your ability to point to like historical resonance on that correlation of like these themes have done well in that country before. Like as a, as a business owner, if I had made that content, the ability to think about my marketing differently and to know kind of where to double down. I mean, how many jokes about marketing have there been for a hundred years? You know, the John Wanamaker joke, like from a hundred years ago, I'm, I'm wasting half of my media dollars. I just don't know which half. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. If you take it, it all comes back to this deep understanding of content and pairing it with an understanding of an audience behavior, whether that's geographic on this country by country perspective or zip code level or demography driven or even audience segments on a streaming platform. If you can understand who this piece of content will resonate with, you can make a decision. Should I actually green like this? Because it will there be an audience or or when we're going through this process, who is the audience that will actually resonate with this so that I'm actually making a lot more strategic decisions? You know, there's nothing more frustrating as a filmmaker. You know, I'm a movie producer by trade. I was a producer at Lionsgate for a bunch of years before this. There's nothing more frustrating as a movie producer than realizing you're wrong about who you think your audience is. Because if you think your audience is X, but in reality, it's Y, all of your creative decisions is go are kind of going into targeting x when that actually may, might be the thing that turns your actual audience away and so if you can understand that at an early stage we're not telling creatives you should kill this character or change you know the the music or the stylistic approach we just let you know who your audience is so as an investor as a studio executive as whoever you are you can just be a little bit more, you know, strategic, data-inspired decision-making. I think that's really important. It's this, you know, happy blend where art meets science. And, and that's really what, what resonates with the people we're working with in the industry. Like one, one cool example is that if you have a deep under, if you are working with a streaming service, for example, you can take a deep understanding of all of their content and understand what is their brand. Right. Because all of these companies, you think about it, the, the Marvels, the Pixars, the, you know, the DCs of the world, the HBOs of the world, they have a brand that they're everything that they greenlight needs to fit within that brand. But right now, the way they identify that brand is a gut feeling. You know, does this feel like Disney? Well, kind of, I think. 
But if you can actually look at something and define genomically, what does Pixar-ness mean? What does Marvel-ness mean? When I'm looking at a new script or when I'm looking at a new concept, does this fit within the genomic makeup of our brand? Is it over or under index? That's important. And so then it can inspire that decision-making so that as they go forward, they know who this audience is. You know, what? one thing that the genome doesn't do is we cannot, you know, hold their hand as they make this piece of content. You know, a bad movie is a bad movie. A bad show is a bad show. A great movie is a great movie and a great show is a great show. But it's once you've created it, how do you find the audience that will resonate with this? That's where you can be a lot more strategic and there's so much room to increase kind of your profitability in the space. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you brought up being a producer coming out of Lionsgate. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. So talk about producing a Tyler Perry movie. What, what's, what's that like compared to what people might think it's like? I mean, Tyler Perry is one of the most professional people I've ever met. You know, he's a, you know, that was right at when I was just joining the company and it was, I was new to animation, didn't know anything about it, but that, that man's an absolute workhorse. Um, like I can't even remember how many, you know, roles he played in this film, but I'm going to make it up. Let's say it was 10 and his ability, you know, I would, I would equate it to some, working with someone like a Seth MacFarlane, right? Where he can go from character to character, to character, to character at the snap of a, you know, a finger. And so, you know, the ability for Tyler to, to do that for this film was, and you know, he, I don't think he'd done much animation before this. And so it was a kind of a new world for him, but you know, I, I don't know what the, 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 what people think. All I know is that he gets done and he gets it done fast. And he's in, you know, there's a, there's a reason that he has kind of taken over the Atlanta film industry with, the, with his studio that he built there. I think it's the biggest studio in the world or biggest studio in the United States, but I've had friends that have shot there and just say it is unlike anything they've ever, uh, they've ever done. And, you know, it was a joy to work on that project. So personally, I find his story super, super just inspirational. I don't know if you heard all the backstory of like the play and having to like quit his jobs to throw the play Medea first. And then he go get another job and another opportunity he had to quit his job. He quit, he quit like seven jobs trying to make that play. And like he, he'd like basically given up and he's like, that's it. It's been too many years. I guess my dream is dead. And he's like, kind of like, he, he was like saying a prayer to, he's like, you know, I guess this isn't what you meant for me to do. And he hears all these noise outside. Like it sounds like a movie. Okay. And for shows that had been losing money for like seven years in a row, right after that, he's at the house of blues in LA and he goes outside and lineups around the block and down the street. And that's when it started selling out and then it kept selling out. And then that let him get into the movies. And it's just like, he's such a, like, uh, he's such an example of that persistence. Like when you listen to him, you sound like you were watching the movie Rudy. Like it's, yeah, it's so impressive. Well, what's, what's interesting about it. It's that's a great example of, you know, hardworking grit. It's what we teach. You know, we have an internship program. It's what we teach all of our interns is that if you pursue this industry with hard work and passion, but also a heavy, heavy dose of kindness, you will be able to be successful here. I mean, obviously you need skill and you need, you know, a vision, but hard work goes a long way in Hollywood. But the thing that Tyler was able to do is he was able to get there and then find an amazing partner. And, and realistically, he found that partner with Lionsgate, with Mike Pasternak at Lionsgate, who really helped grow his entire career. 
And so, you know, Tyler Perry deserves all the credit. I mean, and I'm not taking any of that credit away. The thing that makes him what, but, but what Lionsgate, I think, deserves a lot of that credit too, because they, they saw in him what he saw in himself. Right. And so it's finding that partner. And, you know, if you were to take that, take that kind of concept, right? Tyler Perry brand Medea and finding a partner. So what studio, what production company, what streaming service would this fit with? Makes sense that it's Lionsgate. And you can do that, you know, genomically, if you will, to collide those two worlds. It's interesting, you know, because his movies aren't for everybody. No. He definitely got an audience who want to see those movies. That's for right. sure. Yeah. Um, and there's the obvious, there's the obvious there's the obvious audience that probably a lot of us Americans know who love it, but, but it would be interesting for somebody like that to try to guess the data on like, will this play well in Turkey when it's dubbed? Will this play well in Thailand when it's dubbed or not? You know what I mean? Like, and so for them to not just have to make wild guesses and to be able to have in the ability to make an informed decision instead of guessing moves stuff closer to a science instead of only being an art. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting. You look at uh, we're, we're finally getting into this world where because of streaming, we are accepting of dubbed content, accepting of subtitled content. You know, look at Squid Game, look at Parasite, look at, you know, Lupin. Yeah, Lupin or 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 Money Heist. You know, all of these are foreign pieces of content or, you know, Lunchbox, which is a beautiful Bollywood film. And really at the core of of it all is storytelling. And if so, if you can get past that, you know, this is in, you know, French or in Spanish or in, you know, I don't know, Korean. If you can get past that at its core, it's storytelling. Right. And so there are audiences for stories everywhere. I th- I, I'm. I think that this is the case. You might have to fact, fact check me on this, but I believe it's K-dramas, Korean dramas overperform in Mexico, which is interesting. Like that's that's a fascinating statistic or or it's either that or Mexican telenovelas overperform in South Korea. It's one of those two, but there's a connection there. And so it's what about those cultures are similar? What about those themes are similar? And it's. And, you know, that's what we try and do with catches. If everything can be analyzed into the same variables, how do you pair that, you know, filmmaker in Nairobi with an audience in Idaho? Because there is an audience there. You just need to find it, right? Yeah, it's interesting, like trying to think of the ways this applies to other industries, right? Because, you know, most business owners hit a plateau and doing the same thing for the same people is not typically a way to to keep growing. Right. Right. And yet it feels different of like, do we want to go to another region? Do we want to go to another country? What about all the laws there? What, you know, how are we going to go? Like, is it going to be worth the risk? It's almost like starting the business over again, right? Right. And I look at Lupin and again, I I should be fact-checked on this, but I believe at one point it was the number one show in America. French, you know, (laughs) a French mystery was the number one show in America. And it's funny, like my, my family, we love, we love movies. We have like this giant white wall where we get the projector. So it's like, I don't know, you know, 15 feet tall, 20 feet wide movies at home. Okay. Right. Yeah. My 14 year old will not watch them with us. She's like, she gets bored. She just doesn't, she's not a movie person. Right. She was, she would watch every Lupin with me though. And, and so it's this idea of like, did those French filmmakers really, I mean, they definitely didn't know it was going to be number one in America because nobody knows, but like, did they really have the sense that it was going to do as well as it did? And if they did, was that sense based on data or was it a wild claim? Well, but, and then the question is, well, the question is, is was that the French filmmakers or was that Netflix? Because who who is the one that's pushing this out to their audience? The thing that Netflix does better than anyone else 
because they have, so they, they have, you know, micro genre, you know, where each piece of content is tagged at tons of these micro genres. And then the thing that they also have is a heck of a lot of behavioral data. Every single time you're on there, you stop for a millisecond on this movie poster. They capture that. You click on this, they capture that. And so that's why password sharing is so difficult because you, the data kind of gets a little bit uh, screwed, but that's all right. But if you think about that, the thing that they're so darn good at is knowing what poster to show you versus me, what trailer to show you versus me, what scene to show you versus me, what to put on your home screen versus my home screen. They're expertly good at that. And so exactly. And so that's really what we provide everyone else. We all, we give everyone else in the space that level of, of targeting ability. How how do you know what poster to show you versus me when it comes to a discovery of witches on AMC Network or, you know, the undoing on HBO? Well, I want to take a bit of a right turn. I know we've only got a few minutes for the end of part one here, but I think it's really cool that you were a producer at Lionsgate. Like to me, I'm like, you're set. No, you quit and decide you're going to start a tech company. Tell me about, tell me about the experience. Like what, what has been one of the biggest learning experiences of essentially coming from a very people-based opinion-based business to a very factual database type of business? Yeah, it's one, it's, I look back on my life and think about the decisions that you make, right? The decision to, you know, go to this rooftop barbecue where I met the first person I ever worked in Hollywood with, or the decision to move to Los Angeles or the decision to retire from my dream job to start a company that, you know, when I gave notice to Lionsgate, Nolan wasn't even on the team yet. And so that, that was wild. And, but what I learned is there are so many parallels between being a film producer and being a tech CEO, really being a CEO in general. Yeah, give, give us one of those. Yeah, yeah. So being a, a, a movie producer is basically, you know, as someone describes it as, it's a firefighter. It's your job to, you know, put out fires all day long. Every day there's a new problem. The, the joke is you ask a movie producer what an average day looks like and they're like, there's no such thing as an average day. And so it's it's a lot of people management. But in in movies, right, you have, and I you take the it from idea to final delivery, right? So you hire the director, you hire the writer, you hire all the artists. Then you make sure you have all these deliverables. You have investors that have invested in this. You have a delivery, you have a schedule, and it's either going to be successful or it's going to lose money, right? That's just how it works. Sound kind of familiar, right? That kind of sounds like starting a company. Have an idea. You hire these people. You have investors. You find the money. You try and make it work. And then hopefully it works and everyone makes money. Sometimes, a lot of times it doesn't work and nobody makes money or you lose money. But that's the exact same. It, in, in film, it's a lot of creative people. In tech, it's a lot of creative people. It's just creative at, you know, designing a product or creative at creating a genome or creative at whatever it may be. So it's still people management at its core. It's still, tr you know, trying to turn a dream into a reality. Yeah. You know, I'm interested when you think about people management, mm -hmm. who's somebody from your life that you look up to? Like you're like, man, someday I want to manage people as well as them or, or just handle people or make people 
my mother, hands down. Yeah, yeah. So she is executive coach. So she works with some of the top tech companies out there, working with their management team, CEOs to, you know, heads of departments and working with them on how to deal with these issues. So talk about the perfect person to have in your corner as you try and start a company, just because she is, you know, she, she's just such a great listener. And really, she the way that she thinks about interactions and how people interact. We, one thing we've implemented as a company is the Enneagram. Do you know the Enneagram? Yeah. So that she's been an Enneagram coach for 25 years or whatever it is. And so it's one of those things that my entire life I've grown up on. And, you know, it's what I like about it is it actually, there's a lot of merit to it. And if you can understand, you know, from a, yeah. We, we should back up. For anybody who doesn't know what it is, I, I compare it to like a personality test thing, but kind of different. <laughs> But I'm not very good at I'm not very good at pitching the Enneagram. I think it does. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's basically it says that there are nine basic personality types that out there. One through nine. One's not better than nine. They're, we're all different, right? For example, I'm a seven and my mother is a two and my brother is a nine. Yeah, seven is the enthusiast, if you can't tell. There but there's a lot of there's there are positive sides and downsides to every single type. And so what what happens is if you can understand your company, right? All the people in your company and really in but you have to embrace this as a company. It can't be Andrew learns what every single person is and I manipulate. Because that's not the best way to do this. But if if we all understand each other, you know, I understand that Ray is a one. When I'm communicating with Ray, I understand that by saying, by phrasing things certain way, it might, you know, offend him when in all, it, in reality, I'm not trying to offend at all. I'm just asking a question. And so if you can actually understand why something sounds kind of like the denome, if you will, if you can understand why someone will resonate with it, maybe phrase it a little bit differently and they will totally accept that message. Isn't that interesting, right? And so, you know, I it's it's been such a, a gift. We at our, our all hands, we had an Enneagram workshop that was just game changing for us. Honestly, it was the best thing that could have happened. I have my cheat sheet of, you know, who is each each thing on the Enneagram and what are the things that you can say that, you know, might offend and what are the things that, you know, and so it's kind of it's very Enneagram genomic related. I think about it this way, like my one partner at Greystoke Investments, my one partner, John, I can like dream build of like, hey, here's where we're going eventually and vision, you know, do like the visionary, like where are we going to get to in 10 years? And let's like for us, it's so motivating. It's worth doing the immediate work so that we can one day get there. My my one of my other partners, my brother, he does not want to hear that. He doesn't want to hear that. He wants to know what are we doing in the next five minutes? And like if we go on to like what we're going to do eventually stuff too long, he's like, hey, guys, I got to go. He like literally will get off the call or right. And so it's like, OK, well, when when I when I'm talking to my brother, it's like I got to rein myself in because I want to I want to run away with myself of like, hey, and then we could do this and go on the super creative. And he's like, how are we going to do that? You know, and yet if I say like, hey, here's the next thing. What do you think about this? And let him feel that feeling of control of like what we're doing next and that that's actually realistic instead of just just throwing something on the wall again. We do really well. Right. Well, it, it's it was like one of our co-founders, Kyle, is a six. 
and a six is they are the worrier. He's the type that bought, you know, a ton of N95 masks in, you know, December of 2019 because he saw something coming. You know, they're the person that if something bad happens, you immediately turn to their six because they've looked through every worst case scenario. But for me, who's an enthusiast and a let's go get it, we clash. But there's no better partner <laughs> than to have someone that is, you know, the paying attention to everything that can go wrong when you have a dreamer and a seven, right? And so it's finding that happy balance for how can you do this? You know, how can I utilize a tool like this to, you know, be better at, you know, being a company, if you will. Okay, well, we'll we'll, we'll stop here for part one. Everybody tune into part two. Andrew, where are the best places for people to come see your company and uh, connect with you maybe on social? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So LinkedIn, Andrew Tight, T-I-G-H-T. It's, and then our website is www.catchdata.com. It's K. A-A-T-C-H data, D-A-T-A dot com. Awesome. Hey, everybody, tune back in for part two. Thank you.